Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all. Thank you for coming along. Um, and to those of you that are online, it's great to see you as well. Um, what a wonderful morning together again, despite it being freezing cold, despite the weather. So let's just give thanks that we can be together. What a way to start off, hey? Camilla's already clapping. I think she wants me to finish up, so... <laughs> All right, let's just quickly pray. Father, we just invite you into this place today. We just ask that you may just enlighten our hearts and our minds and that this morning, whatever it is that we're seeking, whether we're on the, the fringe of faith or following or leaving or wherever we might find ourselves in that great continuum, I just ask that you may just um, inspire us, that you may just connect to our deepest needs, that we might be able to connect with one another and learn to love one another on a deeper level also. But through everything, God, we just um, want to make you great. We just pray that as we come around the Word, it may just be a form of deep worship of you. And everybody said, Amen. Fantastic. Well, it's great to, great to be here. Great to continue on this series. We're up to week nine of this series of Everywhere You Go. And last week, we spoke about the centrality of the resurrection. We spoke about how if you wanted to put uh, an exclamation point on the case for faith, the case of Christianity, how it all rises and falls in the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus... And we talked about how reliable that document was, or unreliable, depending on how you want to view it, being the account of Luke. And we talked, started to begin to examine our own biases whenever we're introduced to somebody or something and how that has a big influence in the relationship that we then form with it thereafter. But when I sort of think of the life of Jesus, I think that the life of Jesus can be best described as an invitation towards life. Like when I read about the statements of Jesus, I just continually hear time and time and time again an invitation to come and experience life, to come and have life to the full, come and have eternal life, come and see what it is to experience life when you walk in my ways and to, to experience what it is to, to love differently, to be loved, to do forgiveness, to do generosity, come and experience what it is to do life in community, come and experience this thing called life. But I think... When I look at my own life, when I look at the world around us, I think so often we, humanity ends up picking up the pieces of our broken lives and we end up sort of asking this age-old question of asking, is this it? Is this it? Is this all that there is to life? Is there not something more to life than this? Which makes that invitation of Jesus, that continual description of the life of Jesus of come away with me and you'll discover life just so appealing and so enriching and so... Um, captivating because if there is some substance to it, then my goodness, it can just service so many of our deepest, deepest needs. Now, there's a story in the, in the Gospel of Luke, it's also in a couple of the other Gospels, which has always sort of struck me to my core, <laughs> which I've always found it quite hard to read, and I'd love to share it with you this morning. It's, in, it's the, the story of the rich young ruler, I think it's Luke 18 off the top of my head. Um, we've got the you know, scriptures up on, on the stage. But I love this story and I ask that this morning when we hear this, this story, wherever you are on the spectrum of faith, if you're new to faith, would you bear with me as I hopefully explain it well. But if you are, have been walking with Jesus for quite some time in this lifelong apprenticeship to him, like to a master, and if you've heard this story a thousand times and read this story a thousand times, can I ask that you perhaps read it with fresh eyes this morning in the hope that maybe Jesus will enlighten something new to you. But I love this story and I find it so challenging because there's this, this young ruler, this young man, this rich young man, and he comes up to Jesus. He interrupts Jesus. So Jesus is traveling with his companions. Luke describes that they're traveling on their way towards Jerusalem, but they're traveling with 
uh, along Jesus with his merry little band. They're heading towards Jerusalem, and this rich young man comes up to Jesus, and he comes up seeking life. He comes up, he's obviously got this question inside of his heart, inside of his being, the same question that we all ask of ourselves, saying, is there not more to life than this? And he, driven by this question, he comes up and he interrupts Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in our tradition, or at least the way that I've always interpreted this story, and I think the way that most people have interpreted this story, we've always sort of vilified this young man. I think because we know how the story ends. Often we've vilified this young man. But when we look at this young man, he is a good young man. Like, let's set the context of this young man. This young man is a socially responsible citizen. He's a generous, compassionate, good neighbour. He's not trying to rip anybody off. He's doing the best that he can. He's a good young man. He's a young man that perhaps we all wish that we could be, or perhaps he's the young man that we all see ourselves as being. In fact, this young man in this story is you and it's I. This young man in this story, he stands where we stand and he asks the question that's on the tip of our tongues, that's on our lips, and he stands there and he asks that question that we ask of Jesus. Jesus, what is it that I must do to be able to inherit life? What must I do, Jesus, so that I can actually grab a hold of this invitation towards life that you're forever drawing us towards? What must I do? And Jesus' description of eternal life, like we talked about in those early weeks, is different to how Many of us have grown up understanding eternal life. We hear this phrase and we just think of heaven. We think of a place that we go to when we die. But Jesus in John 17 says, what is eternal life? life? Eternal life is knowledge of the Father. It's knowledge of God, but not just the head knowledge. Jesus described it as being a, a union with God or a being with God, or about a, being a relationship with God or being marriage with God. So God being this triune being, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit that's in this eternal dance with one another, this eternal relationship of this eternal community with one another. Eternal life is coming along and being a part of that relationship, of being in union, of existing alongside of with which means that heaven's not just a place that one day we get to go to, but heaven's a place that we can take up residence in the here and now. The kingdom of God is not somewhere in the distance, but it is a now and a not yet. We get to participate in the kingdom of heaven here today as we get to be subjected to a good king. This is what eternal life is by the definition of Jesus. But this young man seeking life, he stands where I stand and he asks the question on my lips. He says, but God, but Jesus... Don't you see I'm a good man? Don't you see that I stand here? I do my very best, right? Let's look at this next um, scripture here. Thank you. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony, but honor your father and mother. So in other words, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. And this young man would have known the commandments because he turns around and he says to Jesus, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So this is where we get this understanding that this was a good man. And so this young man stands where I stand and he asks the question that I ask. He says, God, don't you see that I'm doing the very best that I can? I am a good person. I try my very best to love my neighbour as myself. I try to make sure that I don't rip off my colleagues. I try to make sure that I represent you in my workplace. I try to be a good parent. 
I try my best to pray. I try my best to read the scriptures. I try my best. I try to follow your way as best as I can. All these I've kept since I was a boy. All these I've kept since I was a youth. I've been walking with you, God. But you know what, God? What must I do to inherit this eternal life? What must I do to be able to experience this life that you've described? Is there not more to life than this, he is saying. And this is the reason why this story cuts to the core of me, because if you're anything like me, you'll know that sometimes you've had seasons in life, well, let me just speak of my own existence. I've had seasons in my life where I've become so fixated, I suppose, on morality, on being a good person, on following the commands of God, and it's left me feeling in a place where I still feel dry. It's left me in a place where I still feel, where I've got this aching question in my heart of, is there not more to life than this still? Like, is this still all that there is? Because if you're anything like me, you've got a propensity towards um, taking that second half of the, the great equation of faith. Like, often we simplify faith as being to love God and to love others. If you're anything like me, often I get so fixated on that second half of that equation of the loving others part. <laughs> And the reason why I do that is because it's the part that I can control. <laughs> but more than that, if I'm being really honest and transparent, it's because other people can judge me by that part. Other people don't necessarily see my relationship or see my spiritual disciplines as it pertains to the first part of that equation of loving God. But they, they see the way in which I treat people. They see the way in which I treat my wife. They see the way in which I treat my daughter. They see the way in which I treat Talia or Mary or Luke or... They see the way I treat people at the football club. They see the way I treat people. And so I've got this bias, I suppose, to making sure that it appears as though I'm following the commandments, that I'm doing the things of Jesus, that I'm doing the things of the law. And I can't tell you how many times in my life I've come to a point uh, or come to a season. The reason why it's not a specific story, but just a general story is because it happens time and time again. But inevitably what happens when I when I'm in these seasons where I'm so fixated on my works or on my morality, is that I come to a place where I just feel so blah. I just feel tired. I just feel disconnected from what really matters. I feel like as if I'm busting my gut at work or I'm busting my gut with my family or I'm busting my gut with health or whatever it is. I just feel so drained and so fatigued and so listless and so lifeless from it. I just end up feeling like as if I'm worshipping at the God of productivity. Or I'm worshipping an idol of, you know, I'm in control, I can just take it all upon myself and I can just figure it out. But I know that this isn't the story of just me because this is in very, very many ways the story of Israel through the wilderness, isn't it? And, and their relationship with God and of continually trying to wrestle with the old covenant and with faithfulness and with obedience and it's the reason for which Jesus came with a new covenant but more to that later on, I suppose. But what I find when I'm in this situation, for a long time I didn't have a language for it, and then I was listening to a sermon by our good friend Stu Cameron. He's come and spoken here before. He's now the, the head, the, the, the man that's large and in charge of Wesley Mission in Sydney. And he described a place called the doldrums. I don't know if anybody's heard of the doldrums before. I suppose most of you probably have. But do you know what the doldrums mean? So the doldrums... Roddy's got his hand up, but he's too far away, so I can't ask him. <laughs> the doldrums is a place of stagnation. 
It's a place of dullness, it's listless, it's lifeless, it's still to the point of death. So the doldrums are a place that's near the equator and it's a place where the trade winds stop and everything becomes very, very still. And for centuries and centuries, sailors, these brave sailors that would be brave enough to explore the seven seas, to go beyond the edge of the map with no promise of safe passage, these sailors that would be prepared to take on areas which were known for violent storms and rocky ground, the place that they feared, the place of trepidation for them was this place of the doldrums because what would happen is that they would sail and all of a sudden the wind would stop and they'd be stranded in this lifeless environment. There'd be no wind to, to wet their sail, no wind, to, no breeze to cool their face. And as they got stuck there for day after day, for week after week, potentially month after month, they'd freak out. There'd be whispers and rumours of scurvy below the decks. This place of the doldrums where it is lifeless, where we're stagnant and stuck in the mud. And so when my friend Stu Cameron described this place, for me, and I don't know if you feel the same way, sometimes life feels like as if you can be stuck in the doldrums. Sometimes it feels like you're stuck in this place where you are listless, where it's not necessarily that there's a crisis, but it just feels like there's no movement. It just feels like dull. It just feels tiring. It feels empty and it feels overwhelming. For me, I think that's why this story of this rich young man resonates with me because I think, in some regard, that's the emotional state with which this man came to Jesus. He says, don't you see all that I'm doing and yet, God, I'm still seeking some life. I'm still seeking more. What is it that I'm missing? I read a really fascinating book recently really fascinating. So the authors are these non-Christian sociologists, and it was written about 15 years ago, and they surveyed thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of American teenagers, both faith and non-faith, and when I say faith, all denominations and all faiths, because what they wanted to understand was they wanted to understand what faith and spirituality meant for the next generation. Again, that was 15 years ago, so it's probably my generation now today. And what they found was fascinating because they found this immensely strong social trend, this immensely strong social identities that pertain to, to faith and spirituality that went beyond just a denomination, that went beyond just purely believing in faith. And they called this trend that they observed moral therapeutic, moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. Fascinating. And the way that they describe moral therapeutic deism is that they describe that for most, um, for, uh, the, the, for most of those that were in the society, for the, the, uh, if you think of the population as being on a bell curve, for the majority within the, the, the middle there, they describe faith and spirituality like this, that they are at the centre of it, and that the point of life, or the point of faith, is to be a good person. And that through being a good person, you're rewarded with some therapeutic, and that word is intentional, some therapeutic benefits. And that this God, who might or might not exist, but this God is a creator God who creates the world, and he creates the rules, and he creates the order. 
but he's not really involved in day-to-day life. And so we've got this phenomenon where in our wider world, most people, whether of faith or non-faith, they sort of ascribe to a similar belief system where where it all becomes about God being this person that helps me live a good moral life. And then that's the summation of it. Let me read you a quote from this book, or from this study rather, to help describe it a little bit further and then I'll um, finish making this point the long way around. (laughs) So the authors say this, like the deistic God of the 18th century philosophers, the God of contemporary teenage moralistic therapeutic deism is primarily a divine creator and lawgiver. He designed the universe and establishes moral law and order. But this God is not not Trinitarian. He did not speak through the Torah or the prophets of Israel. He was never resurrected from the dead and does not fill and transform people through his spirit. This God is not demanding because he actually can't be, because his job is to solve our problems and make people feel good. And this is the part that really just captivates me. In short, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. So this is what non-faith sociologists have described the Western world's relationship with faith. That we've reduced God to something of a combination between a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. Where the whole point of it is that we live a good moral life, where we fulfil all the commandments, but what I've observed personally and as I look around in the world around me, it ends up leading us to a place called the doldrums. Because you see, what happens is, is that when we reduce our faith, when we reduce spirituality in our quest for life, when we reduce it to being this moralistic viewpoint purely and solely as being the end goal, we rob our God of all that He is. We rob our God of the story and the power of the resurrection, of being able to take it, someone from dead to alive. We rob our God of being a God who can take a few loaves of bread and some fish, being able to multiply it and feed thousands. We take our God from being a God that can come alongside of a leper and be brave enough to touch a leper and to heal a leper. We take our God as being a God who can come alongside a tax collector and through the generosity of hospitality transform a life and see a community changed. We rob our God of being this person of victory and triumph and power and instead we replace him with being a divine butler and a cosmic therapist because we want to feel good about ourselves and the way we feel good about ourselves is that we end up being a good person. Now this morning I definitely don't want to demean being a good person. I don't want you to hear me going too far along that side of it because again half the equation is loving God and loving others. I don't mean to say that at all. Because there is certainly life that's found through following the ways of Jesus and that pertains entirely to how we live amongst others. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the authors of this book and of this sociological trend that they've observed, they make the statement that what's happening here is it's like a parasite to a host. That moral, moralistic therapeutic, I can't even speak this morning, deism... That can't exist on its own, but rather what happens is that it latches onto the host, which being the, the true gospel. And what happens then is that it robs us of power. Jesus came to us and he said, I'm the bread of life. Anyone who has of me 
We will not go hungry. We will not thirst, right? I almost liken this to being like we've gone and we've just had the diet bread, <laughs> the low-calorie bread, and we wonder why we still feel malnourished and empty, why we sometimes feel like we're still stuck in the doldrums. And so coming back to our story of this rich young man, I think he's quite like us. I think he's a lot like us. I think he's seeking life, but he hasn't quite found it yet. And so he's come to God, sorry, he's come to Jesus and he said to Jesus, how may I have life? And he's not understood the question because the source of life, as Jesus was describing, the source of eternal life is union with God. That is the fountain of life, right? And so he's come to Jesus and Jesus has asked him, he said, have you kept the commandments? And the man said, yes, God, yes, Jesus, of course I have. Look at how faithful I have been. Look at my religious um, observance. Look at how good I am. And then if we flick over, let's continue the story. This is the part that gets me. So Jesus, looking at this young man, looking at me, looking at you here today, Jesus looking at this young man, looks at this young man with love and with understanding. And he says, you know what, young man, you still lack one thing. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And when this young man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy and he walked away. You see, it wasn't really about the wealth, was it? This story wasn't necessarily about another action that you've got to take in being a good person. This story is a story of surrender, isn't it? What Jesus was really asking here, he was inviting him to surrender more of his being to be able to enter into that union with God. That's the point of the story that Jesus is getting across here. That's the point that Jesus is driving home. And that's a long way around for me to say like this this morning. Our invitation to the gospel or our invitation towards life, the eternal life, the life now and the not yet, is always through the door, it's always through the ask, it's always through the invitation of surrender. It's always through the invitation of will we give up a little bit more of ourselves in pursuit of this man called Jesus. It's always been about that and it always will be about that. I heard one Catholic priest describe it like this. He described it as being like as if he pictured his, his soul, he pictured his being as being like a mansion with 30 rooms. And of those 30 rooms, he'd already given 27 away towards Christ. But for him, surrender meant... Or following the example of this rich young man in this story meant giving away those last three rooms. And this is the beautiful thing about Jesus' invitation with the gospel is that it's always relevant to us. So if we're on the fringe of faith, exploring faith for the very first time, what this invitation towards surrender, towards to come and be with Jesus, what that looks like is just as relevant for those of you that have been walking with Jesus forever. And Jesus is still asking, that, would you come and allow me to have another room of your life, another room of your mansion, another room of your, your being, of your soul? I've got this, um, this poem here that I'd like to read. I'm not normally a, someone that's into poems and literature like that, but I just felt like it described it so beautifully. And I thought, Andrew, that now might be a good time if you want to come up and if you just want to play some keys. There's this beautiful poem, it's called Covenant, 
And again, it speaks to this rich young man because this rich young man, he came sad and he walked away sad. And he didn't actually pay anything. He didn't lose anything. He didn't lose anything other than an opportunity. And this, what Jesus is speaking to us through this story of this rich young man is, yes, we can be faithful, but the most important thing is always of our union with God. It's always through the door of surrender. And so the poem goes like this. It says, The father knocks at my door, seeking a home for his son. Rent is cheap, I say. I don't want to rent, I want to buy, says God. I'm not sure I want to sell, but you might come in to look around. I think I will, says God. I might let you have a room or two, I like it, says God. I'll take two. You might decide to give me some more one day. I can wait, says God. I'd like to give you more, but it's a bit difficult. I need some space for me. I know, says God, but I'll I'll wait. I like what I see. Hmm. Maybe I can let you have another room. I really probably don't need that much. Thanks, says God. I'll take it. I like what I see. I'd like to give you the whole house, but I'm just not sure. Think on it, says God. I wouldn't put you out. Your house would be mine and my son would live in it. You'd have more space than you'd ever had before. I don't understand at all. I know, says God, but I can't tell you about that. You'll have to discover it for yourself. That can only happen if you let him have the whole house. Oh, it's a bit risky, I say. Yes, says God, but try me. Oh, I'm not sure. I'll let you know. I can wait, says God. I like what I see. Now, I know that not everybody in the room loves poultry, and I know that not everybody in the room finds intimacy with literature like that, but I know that some people do. So my friends, this morning's very simple. The invitation is, would you, if you are seeking more of life, if you feel like you are stuck in the doldrums, if you feel like as if you've been sailing the seas and have arrived at a place and you just feel listless and tired and stagnant and stuck, regardless if you're on the fringe of faith or if you've been following Jesus for a long, long time, the invitation of Jesus is always one and the very same, and it's always one towards union with him first. My old pastor used to be very fond of saying that the genius is in the order. And this is so true of this story. You see, when we have union with God, we then become love and we become good and the the rest of life then flows. But when we don't get that order right, when we make an idol or worship out of being good, we find ourselves disconnected from the very source of life. So this morning, the invitation is very simple and that is, Would you like to surrender some more of your life to Christ? Now, I love this analogy of the rooms and how God's so patient and how He'd love to take more, but He's so patient and He's ready to go at your pace. But I wonder what rooms you've got locked up in your house this morning that you'd 
and unsure if you're ready to let go of yet. For some of you, there might be a room and it's got some emotional baggage behind of it and you're not ready to let God have that room yet. Maybe it's resentment towards the church, anger towards a family member, unforgiveness towards your colleague, disappointment in your pastor. (laughs) For others, perhaps that room's got the, the room of lost opportunity and the grief of what could have been but hasn't been. Perhaps that room is your status and your job and you're holding too tightly onto your position. Perhaps it's fear and trepidation about what God might ask of you. Perhaps it's your material world and the security that you find it. Perhaps it's the envy and the the jealousy, the wanting of something different. The story of humanity is that we've all got these rooms of our life and God is always extending an invitation, will you surrender a little bit more of it to me? So what we're going to do, we're actually going to just, yeah, perfect. Um, Mikey, do we have, uh, can I use one of these microphones up here somewhere? Is that all right? Can you, is there one? Sorry. Who am I going to pick on? Luke. Would you be brave enough to pray for some people this morning? Yes! Luke, can you come up here, mate? This is part of Luke's surrender this morning. He's going to get out of his comfort zone and pray for some people. Okay. So, Luke, in a moment, those that are in the room that are seeking more of life that don't want to open up a door because it's scary and because behind that door they just don't know what God's going to ask of them, whether it be he's going to ask more of them, maybe he's going to ask who knows what. But someone's got, I can sense that there's somebody in this room that doesn't want to open up the door or surrender towards Jesus this morning because of fear. Would you just pray for them? That's all right. Let's all just close our eyes. And if that's you this morning, in turn, I'm not asking you to do anything external, but internally would you just say yes that's me uh, dear God I just want to pray for the people people in this room that they can open their hearts to God that they can open their door and let God into that place in their life that they think they can't yet I pray that they can have the confidence and power in them that you can give it to them that they can let you into their life that they can let everyone into their life in a new and exciting way Amen. Hey, well done, Luke. You can grab a seat. So proud of you, mate. I'm going to pick on a few more people because we've got a, couple, we've got a little bit of time. Uh, Alana, would you like to pray for some people this morning, please? Please? I'm not just picking people willy-nilly. Like, I really feel like God's doing something this morning, even though I feel like God uses the most stuttering of messages and the most illogical steps do you mind so this morning Alana I sense that there are some people in this room that are holding on to some things really tightly and there's some things that need to be let go of would you pray for those let's close our eyes Lord Jesus thank you that you're with us today Lord 
we just pray for the people that you've got in your heart. Lord, we just pray that uh, they have the courage to let go of whatever's holding them back. Lord, we just pray that they're willing to just say, Lord, use me. Um, here I am. I'm willing to let go of some baggage. So, Lord, it's a big step. So, Lord, um, if this is somebody in the room today that you want to um, grab hold of, Lord, we just pray that you um, just are with them right now their heart might be pounding, Lord. So if that's you in this room, Lord, um, somebody in the room now, God just wants to be there for you. He wants to take hold of your life and he wants to uh, work, walk with you as you discover Jesus in your life. So Lord, we just pray for the people in this room. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thanks, Alana. Round of applause for Alana. Thank you. We'll go one more. We'll go one more. Sorry, Mikey. Oh, Kayla, I've made that confusing for the way I held the microphone. I'm sorry about that, buddy. Sarah, do you mind coming up and praying for some people, please? I just feel like God's nudging me towards you, so you've drawn the short straw, I'm afraid, my friend. <laughs> I feel in my spirit that there's somebody here and um, behind that door is just a lot of pain, right? And uh, I think that's the invitation of Jesus towards someone this morning is just towards opening that door. Would you mind praying for that person or those, those people? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the goodness that you are, the goodness that you bring. And Lord, I pray that that goodness be evident here today. I pray that all of us who, who hold distress and whole worry about what does it mean to let you fully in oh god we just take that step of surrender of just moving forward another few centimeters to, to get to know you better to walk with you closer each of us just open up just that little bit more to, to accept the goodness that you are to let go of the hurt and the pain and the trauma and the drama and the, the stuff of life and know that you bring goodness you bring the peace we, de we desire. You bring the wholeness we desire. We know it's in your hands, but somehow letting go is just feels so hard. And you, we, we totally get that you understand this. And we totally get today that this is the right step towards you. And I pray, Lord God, we just be brave and we take that step today. Give us courage. Give us strength, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, I think we're just about done. So uh, Camilla keeps calling my name and keeps clapping towards me, so I think she's done. So <laughs> I think that's the sign that we're done. So um, thank you, everyone, for being here this morning. If you'd like to stick around and chat some more about it, I'm here to talk. Everyone else here would love to chat with you also. But hey, what a beautiful day. What a beautiful day to do community with one another. What a beautiful, beautiful day to worship together. A beautiful day to surrender together. And um, I pray that you all have a blessed week. Okay? Amen. Have a great week. Thank you, Andrew.